But let's talk about a different kind of king today as we are in our second message, King of Heaven. We're keeping our focus in the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we were before this Christmas season, and that's where we'll continue to be throughout, and then we'll, we'll stay in Matthew for at least a couple of months into the new year, I anticipate. But the theme of Matthew is the kingdom, and that Jesus is the true king, he's the greater king, and it's introduced in Matthew chapter 1, the whole kingly theme, and last week we saw in Matthew 1 the lineage, the kingly lineage of David. I'm sorry, of, of Jesus through the line of David. We went from Abraham to David down to, to Jesus. We ta- we, I got a lot of questions after last week because we looked at that mysterious passage about the curse of Jeconiah. And some of you had asked me questions afterwards, and some of you have done some extra research on it, which I love. I love to know that people are studying their Bibles. And um, so if you're like, if you missed last week and you're like, the curse of Jack and I, I have to go back and listen to the message, so check it out. Um, so, but this idea of Jesus being the king was introduced, and you're just going to see it. Just, it's going to just continue into chapter number two. So notice this, this introductory statement. I, I wrote it out carefully on your handout today, so I just want to read this to you, and I want you to think about it. Throughout the Gospels, there is a theme of rival kingdoms. Now, in the time of Christ, there were two major forces that opposed Jesus. Those two major forces that opposed Jesus were, one, the Jewish ruling class, and secondly, the Roman government. Now, many of you are probably aware of that because if you move forward to Jesus' crucifixion, he's crucified by the authority of who? Governmentally, by the authority of who? The Romans, but at the request of whom? The Jewish ruling class. So those two forces were opposed to Jesus all throughout. Now this theme is introduced here in Matthew chapter 2, and I'll read the passage in just a minute. So what does this have to do with today? Well, I'm going to show you how it affects the gospel story, but then we will talk about how it applies today. While the Jewish rulers and the Roman Empire have come and gone. But there are still rival kingdoms at war in the world. There is a battle between different kingdoms, if you will. And when I say kingdoms, I'm talking about philosophies and spiritual movements and political movements that seek the attention of our hearts and our allegiance. There are many kingdoms that, are, are pull, that seek to pull people away from the kingdom of Jesus Christ that we all desire to be a part of, and hopefully all of you are a part of. So Jesus presents himself as a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. And we see this right in the beginning of this nativity passage. Now let me ask you this question, and you can answer this out loud for me. We'll just do a little participation right from the start. We don't really think of ourselves as like, like physically part of a kingdom, but in a sense we are. It's an older term, but when we think of, when we think of like a kingdom and what you tell me, in human terms, what are people looking for in a kingdom? Leadership. I heard it. A king. A king. 
There you go. <laughs> okay. They're looking for a king. They're looking for leadership. What else are people looking for in a kingdom? And why are people drawn to different kingdom concepts and kingdom ideas? What are people looking for? What else? Stability in their lives? Protection? I heard somebody say protection. What'd you say? It's an ideology? Yeah, something to believe in, something to, to, to hold on to. What else? Power? Prosperity? Right? In fact, typically speaking, you can pretty much guess, you can pretty much predict fairly successfully how any presidential election is going to go in America based on how people feel about what? The economy. Almost always, now there are very ideological people, but, but, but the, the, the grand swath of humanity is just like, do I have enough money in my bank account? Can I buy all the things I want? Do I have peace and stability in my life? These are things that people value. These are things that people are looking for. And these are all very earthly needs. Now, is there any, in many ways, that is why God gave us earthly kingdoms and governments, to, so that we could live in a healthy way. But Jesus is about to show us through his whole life, and we'll be introduced to it here, that that is not the focus of his kingdom. And you and I as Christians need to remember that because you and I are being pulled and stretched in both our thoughts and our ideologies and our beliefs. We're being pulled and stretched to revert to worldly kingdom mentalities. Whereas we need to be only allegiant to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, let's read the passage in Matthew chapter 2. Verse 1 through 6. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Verse number 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of who? Herod the king. In the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying... Where is he that is born, help me out, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod, the king, had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, quote, from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, Art not least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. A few things that we need to notice about the difference of the arrival of King Jesus. First of all, I want you to direct your attention to the geographic location. He was born in what town? Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. Now, you already noticed in the passage that was quoted down in verse number 6, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
art not the least among the princes of Judah. Now, when he says least among the princes of Judah, he's referring to all of the towns, all of the towns and cities in this region, Bethlehem would have been what? The smallest, the least significant geographical place out of population, out of significance. Bethlehem is five miles uh, outside of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the center of attention. Jerusalem is where all of the action is. And then if you just travel five miles out of the way, you end up in Bethlehem. There's nothing particularly significant about Bethlehem. In fact, if we go to Micah 5.2 and see, the, the, see that prophecy as it appears in the Old Testament, it says this, Micah 5 and verse 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be, what's it say? Little, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. We see the greatest one who has always been, not who has ever been, but the greatest one who has always and ever been comes from the city in Israel that is the least significant. There's a song that, um, it's, it's a bit of a formal choral song. It's called, How Should a King Come? Has anybody ever heard that, uh, that choir arrangement? Look it up, listen to it, um, and it talks about, it describes, how should a king come? And that's the, 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 the singers say, how should a king come? And the other, uh, the other singers respond, and they describe, you know, majestic horses and fanfare and pomp and circumstance. And then, of course, the song gets to the point where it describes that that's not how Jesus came at all. He came from the most insignificant of places. It's interesting. There are two censuses in the Old Testament um, when they divided up the land. I believe one is in Joshua and the other is in Numbers. I might have that wrong. But in all of those censuses where they said, and the children of Judah will live here and they will live here and the family of this person. How many of you read those verses before? It's like, and these people will live here and those people will live there. In all of the records, you can guess what happened to Bethlehem. It wasn't even mentioned. It doesn't even rank in the listings of cities in the distribution of the land. It's an insignificant place. However, God places his mark on it early because who else is from Bethlehem? David is from Bethlehem, a shepherd. Shepherds outside of Bethlehem come to the birth of Jesus. Insignificant people. Shepherds were not, it wasn't the cute and cuddly you know, the scenes that we have now, it was dirty, grimy, smelly work. Shepherds were not highly thought of. And King David comes, he's the littlest brother from the family. And he's a sh the shepherd in the family. They make the youngest go out and take care of the sheep. Jesus comes, he's born in the littlest town, but not only in the littlest, most insignificant town, but he's not even born in a house. He's born in a manger, in a stable, with the sound of the animals around. How should a king come? Well, Jesus is revealed right from the beginning that his kingdom is going to be very, very different. That his kind of kingdom is different. 
Secondly, I want you to notice here, if you turn over in your notes, um, it says in verse number one, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, this guy is referred to in, by historians. Josephus wrote a lot about him, and we actually have a Roman likeness of him, and his, he was referred to as Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Now, uh, do you remember, I think we've got the, the, the coin or the, or the image of, of Herod the Great. Looks like a pretty important guy, I guess, as important guys from ancient times come. We just read over it, King Herod, bad dude, you know, tried the, the wise men pulled a, pulled a fast one on him, you know, he's, we got that. But Herod was a very significant person in the, in historically in this time. The, the land of Israel had been had traded hands over the years from the Babylonians to the Greeks, now to the Romans, and the Israelites had been giving trouble, causing trouble with all of their overlords. Uh, it's, we're in the middle of Hanukkah right now. We're in the, in the Hanukkah season. It was the Maccabee revolt a couple of centuries earlier, where if you know the story of the Maccabees, that they, they revolted against their Greek overlords, and there was a great miracle that was done before the birth of Christ. And so in the meantime, the Roman government has been, they decide that they are going to set up their, a king of their own choosing to govern the land of Israel. And so Herod comes to power. Now Herod is, is a very unique person because he is a, a Gentile on his father's side, but he actually comes from the line of the Maccabees on his mother's side. And so what you have is you have the union of, of Gentile and Jew, but also Herod was referred to as, and this is a little history lesson for you, Herod was referred to as a Hellenist. So Herod was somebody who embraced Greek culture, but also the Jewish faith to a degree, and also had an Edomite heritage. Herod, if you want, if you were to make, you know how they make all these movies about and, and, and serial episodes about you know political drama and and the dark art of politics and all of that. That's who Herod is. In fact, when the wise men say, when the wise men say, "Where is he that is born to be what king?" Now it's a specific title. Where is he who is to be born? Say the title with me. King of the Jews. Underline, circle, highlight, whatever you have to do. This is a significant title. Where is the one that is born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star in the east. And by the way, if you're going to ask me, like, somebody's going to ask me, what do you think that star was? I have no idea. So I'll save you the question, all right? And you can read tons of ideas about what it was. Nobody knows. Lots of good theories. Somehow, God made these guys see a star and they knew to come. That's all I got for you. All right? Now, they say, where is the one who was born? What? King of the Jews. As soon as Herod heard that statement, it would have cut him. Why? Anybody ever heard of a 
person in history named Mark Antony? Who's ever heard of Mark Antony? You know? Cleopatra, you know, the whole drama, all the good stuff there, right? Mark Antony, associate of Julius Caesar. This is where history meets the Bible. This was a significant part in, in human history. Julius Caesar, Mark Antony. Mark Antony's a little bit older, but Mark Antony is the one who, after Herod was set up, Herod had a relationship, but they, they, were, they were friendly. Mark Antonius, Marcus Antonius, and Herod. Mark Antony is the one who convinced the Roman government to give Herod the specific title. What do you think it was? King of the Jews. That was his title. Herod was known, and he didn't make up with it. He was called the King of the Jews because the most powerful government and military force in the world said, Herod, you are the king of the Jews. And he became known as Herod the Great. In fact, he was so powerful when he died, they didn't just give his kingdom to one person, they actually broke it up among his four sons and one daughter, if I have the numbers correct. It might have been three sons and one daughter. They broke the kingdom up so, and probably so that, that his power would not continue on in his, in his lineage. Herod is a complicated figure because while he was very tied in with the Romans, he also tried to appeal to the, to the Jews. Do you know what he built for the Jews? Or do you know what he expanded upon for them? The temple. Herod's, there had been a temple reconstructed several hundred years earlier. But King Herod was a bit of an architect, and he wanted people to be impressed with who he was. So King Herod said, I am going to make the temple in Jerusalem a magnificent structure. And that's what he did. And so now, in fact, the Wailing Wall today, the Western Wall, is all that remains of Herod's temple in Jerusalem. But so for the Jews, he says, look, I've made this magnificent temple for you. Yet at the same time, he's a complicated figure because he was very concerned that his, uh, that his wife's family from the Maccabee line would take over. So after 13 years of marital bliss, he has his wife executed. Like, th this is ancient history. This is, this is who Herod is. He has his wife and two sons and his mother-in-law executed. I'm avoiding all jokes. Like, I had one coming up, but I, I avoided it. Now, so Herod, not in addition to this, now this will be really interesting. Do you notice the statement in verse, look at verse number four. Verse number four. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he, what's the word? Demanded of them where Christ should be born. And is there any hesitation on their part? No. Do you know why? Because Josephus, I think it is, records that at one point, as a power move, Herod had 46 members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the rulers of the, of the scribes and Pharisees, executed. So this is a man who has consolidated power. The scribes listen to him. The... the 
leaders of the people listen. Everybody listens to Herod. He is in control. What's fascinating about Herod is he believes the prophecy. He, he's, he's biblical enough to believe the prophecy, but audacious enough to think that he can stop it from happening. But Herod has achieved all that political power and kingdom could do for anyone. Very, very successful, very powerful. And so he is challenged by the kingdom of Jesus, that there could be another king. And I just want to share with you this, that the spirit of Herod is alive and well today. Because there are dark kingdom forces at work in the world that want to, that want to manipulate the people of God or want to work behind the scenes to control the people of God yet ultimately serve their own desires and their own power. And we need to look at the fruit of any kingdom. We need to understand that as, and, and I don't, you know, particularly I don't care how you apply this. You could apply this to political movements, even at work in our, our, our time today. You can apply this to uh, materialism that, that pulls at the strings of many Christians' hearts. You can apply this to all things all kinds of different things in your life, but understand the spirit of Herod that says, hey, it's okay for there to be a temple. It's okay for the Jewish people to have that so long as Herod says, I come first. So long as my way moves forward. That spirit is alive and well today and Christians, Christians need to be on guard against it. And those of us who, and those who are listening that may not be a Christian, you need to understand that the way of Christ is fundamentally different than the way of the world. And so that's what I want to show you today is that Matthew has, give us this, has given us this great contrast between King Jesus, born in insignificance, and King Herod the Great. And so I want to finish the message today with four principles of Jesus' kingdom. Four principles of Jesus' kingdom that you and I can apply directly to our lives and we can do some, some examination in our hearts. Derived from this passage but also demonstrated in the life of Christ. The first principle of Jesus' kingdom I want to encourage you toward is that in Jesus' kingdom, we embrace insignificance. We embrace insignificance. It's hard to, it, it's hard to look at, sometimes it's hard to look at the advance of certain individuals or comparison of our lives to the successes of other people and to go through moments in life where we feel insignificant. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have felt insignificant in your life? You did raise your hands, okay. Sometimes we go through like existential questions in our life where we say, what is, what is my life all about? What is the purpose? What is it? Listen, if you have ever felt insignificant, you are in a perfect position to be used in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus' kingdom is all about those who are insignificant. You'll find, you'll find the, um, the life of Jesus marked by insignificance. In fact, there's a, there's a passage that I thought of in this, and it's Matthew 13. Jesus is in... 
Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth, and he's trying to preach and influence them in Nazareth. And what we find is they challenge him. In Matthew 13, verses 55 through 56, they say, Jesus? Jesus? Isn't this who? The carpenter's son? Now, they weren't saying it like, Jesus, the carpenter's son, right? They're like, isn't his dad, you know, the guy that, you know, builds carts and, you know, and, and wood tools, and isn't he just a carpenter's son? And isn't his mother Mary? Like, just plain old Mary? And his brothers? You know, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And not only his brothers, but we also know his sisters. They're all here with us. Like, basically, what are they saying? Jesus is a nobody. That's what they're saying. Why should we be impressed with Jesus? He is a nobody. Once hath, then hath this man all these things. Like, why should I be impressed with him? Who should he be? I didn't give you this reference, but in Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet said, speaking of the coming Christ, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He shall grow up before them as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. In other words, no form or beauty. And when you see him, there is no beauty that you would desire him. It says that Jesus, in his physical appearance, looked just like everybody else. Isn't it so funny that if I were to say, if I were to put up a picture of Jesus that you've all, we've all come familiar with, you'd all be like, oh, I know who that is. That's Jesus. But in fact, as a, in his human form, there was nothing distinguishable about, distinguishable about Jesus other than anybody else. He wasn't particularly handsome. He didn't have a necessarily outstanding voice one way or the other. There's nothing from human characteristics that a person would say, physically, there's something special about him. But he came in the spirit and the power of Almighty God. His words were with wisdom and authority. But as far as insignificance, never once in the Bible are any of us called to become great people. Never once. There's a myth that's given sometimes to young people, and we've got a lot of young, young adults in our church. You're building your life. And a lot of people will tell you, you need to go out and you need to do something great for God. If that is your goal, if that is your goal, you will, you will either be overcome with pride or you will face great disappointment because none of us are called to do particularly great things. We are called to make ourselves available to a great God, a great God. I actually come to God from a position of weakness, not from strength. I don't come to God and say, all right, well, I've trained, I've prepared. This is all I've got for you. Let's see what you're going to do with it. I'm conditioned. I'm ready. No, I come and, and I'm supposed to come and say, as Paul did, Lord, I will rejoice in my infirmities because when I'm weak, that's when you're magnified in my life. In Christ's kingdom, we embrace insignificance. 
Christian people have always been the cultural minority all throughout history. We've always been a, a minority voice. It's, it just fascinates me. In the time that the New Testament was written, from about A.D. 30 to A.D. 90, that's the period in which the New Testament is written. Do you know how much political upheaval was going on in that time? You're like, oh, I don't know. Well, I'll tell you. In that time, the, 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 the whole nation of Israel was conquered by the Romans. The temple was destroyed. The Jewish people were displaced all over the world. The Roman Empire is ascending under Nero. And do you know how much the apostles instructed, instructed the church about their political activity? They just said, fear God, honor the king. Submit to the ordinances of man. It's amazing. It astounds me. At all of the social and societal and governmental upheaval in the time of the New Testament, the focus is on serving others, spreading the gospel, and building Christ's kingdom, not their kingdom. In fact, some of the early disciples of Jesus were political zealots who were turned into gospel zealots. Because Jesus' kingdom, we embrace insignificance. Whether we are the majority in, in America or we are the minority in America is irrelevant to the gospel. It's irrelevant. Because in Jesus' kingdom, I don't have to be somebody. My Savior is everything. He is the great one. Secondly, in the pr second principle of Jesus' kingdom, and this can help us where we live in our personal relationships, in Jesus' kingdom, we invert the power dynamic. We invert the power dynamic. We put it on, upside down. You see, the, the philosophy of the world is you, you get power and influence, and you make things happen. Jesus says this in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Jesus says, and he called them unto him, and he said, Ye know that the great princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. Verse 26. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your what? Your minister. He says, Christians, and whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Now, hold off. We'll get to verse 28 in just a second. Study the history of the world. Any time that Christian people have taken control of the government and, and, and tried to exercise over other people, it has resulted in disaster. It just always has. You, everything from the Crusades to the European Wars of the 15, 1600s, because Christian people are not to bear the sword in Jesus' name. The sword is given, and I'm not saying we can't have a Christian government, we should. But my point is that is not, just a note, Baptist people, Baptist people have always held as a key belief the separation of the church and the state. That the state is given authority by God, that the church should have an influence on the state, but that the church and the state are not to come together. It's an important principle, and it's a Christian New Testament principle. 
And there are some Christians that have got that wrong. And Jesus clearly says here, you are not to be like the Gentiles, getting authority and lording over people. That's not what you do. In fact, you need to be a servant to others. Verse 28, now Jesus says this, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You are never embodying the gospel personally more than when you humble yourself to serve other people. Because you are demonstrating what Christ did. When Christ, the heart of the gospel is Christ says, I will be your servant to give you salvation. He said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. Jesus' kingdom, the principles of his kingdom are different than the principles of the world. We embrace insignificance. We invert the power dynamic. So, for instance, what are the power dynamics in our lives? We have power dynamics at play in our lives. Where do you encounter these power dynamics? Okay, I heard one. Where? At work. You encounter a power dynamic at work. How would Jesus view that? Are you there to be served or to serve? Where else do we encounter these power dynamics in life? In your school and education? In your marriage? In your home? Like, this is probably the most difficult place for us to get this right, is in the home. Where husbands and wives are not to be served, but they are to serve one another. There's an authority. Anywhere you find godly authority, you also see these power dynamics that can be corrupted. And as Christians, we are the people that we turn it on its head. We turn it upside down and say, in God's kingdom, those who lead are called to serve. Thirdly, the third principle of Jesus' kingdom, we are called to fight spiritual battles. We're called to fight spiritual battles. Jesus is about to be taken away by the, by the Romans, or no, I'm sorry, by the Sanhedrin in the, in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Peter thinks he's going to stop all this from happening. So most of you know what he does. He reaches into his waistband, and what does he pull out? He pulls out his sword. And what does he do with that sword? He slices off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus tells him, hey, put your sword away. And he miraculously picks up that man's ear. Right? Quite, that's got to be quite the scene. Picks up the guy's ear and just puts it back on. Just Velcros it back right on there. <laughs> I don't know, sorry, I digress. But it's like, there's my ear on the ground. You know, now it's back. I'm very thankful for that if I'm Malchus. But, I mean, Peter is doing a brave thing, wouldn't you agree? There's, you can't knock Peter for his bravery and his enthusiasm. And he's like, why? Because he's operating under a different kingdom principle. He's like, I'm going to do something about this. I'm not just going to be, I'm not just going to be like all you people standing around. You're just going to stand around and like, you know, let go and let God or something. I'm going to take action here. And he reaches in and he pulls out the sword and totally outnumbered and totally surrounded. He's just, rah, you know, slice. And Jesus says, put away your sword. But look at this. Put up again thy sword into its place. 
For all they that take the sword shall what? Perish with the sword. Fascinating verse. Fascinating verse. Does the New Testament prohibit the use of the sword? Not at all. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, you'll find that the sword is to be given to the human government for protective purposes and for justice. However, Peter was not called to serve in that kingdom. Peter was called to serve in the kingdom of Christ. And the fact is, the sword may serve its purpose in the kingdoms of this world. And the sword may be a necessary evil. But all that the sword, all that power can ultimately do for you is temporary because you will eventually die by that same sword. But Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of death. It's a kingdom of life. It's a kingdom of life. And if you want to live by power and control and authority and, you know, we're going we're gonna to reign supreme and we're going we're gonna to really show it to the enemy and we're going to do all that, you can live by all of that, but that's what you'll also die by. But if you'll be a part, if you'll embrace the principles of Jesus' kingdom, you won't fight with a physical sword. You'll fight with the spiritual sword of the Spirit. And I love the, the, the hymn, O Church Arise, and in that, there's a line in that hymn I think is just so beautiful. It says, and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. We are called to fight spiritual battles. That's a kingdom principle. And those spiritual ba battles, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against uh, the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what we're called to. That's, that is a, we, we fight in the spirit, not in the flesh. Fourth kingdom principle in Jesus' kingdom, as opposed to the principles of Herod or the religious leaders of the day. In Jesus' kingdom, this might be the most, one that hits home to me the most, and I think it will to some of you. We live for eternal life, not just a better life. I want you to get that. We live for eternal life, not just a better life. Even the best of this world's kings and leaders, they, all they can promise us at their best is what? A better life. All your job can promise you at its best is what? A better life. Sadly, that is all that many people want, is a better life. A better life. I would say the ultimate kingdom principle at work today in the world, anti-kingdom principle, is just that. It's that, hey, we will give you a better life. This life will be better for you. Vote for me. Your life will be better. Sign up for this. Your life will be better. Buy this, and your life will be better. Get this job, and your life will be better. better. Better life, better life. But Jesus teaches us, Jesus teaches us that we are to live for eternal life, not for a better life. John 18 and verse number 36. John 18 and 36. Jesus answered, like who did he answer? Pontius Pilate, the new king. This is, this is Herod's 
dead and gone. The ruling governor of Israel, 33 years later, is Pontius Pilate. And Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom, Pilate, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants, what? They would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. It's not from here. Right at the point of his death, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And I want you to turn or follow along now, and I'm going to finish with this passage of Scripture. I want to, it ties the, the, the opening passage, the Matthew passage together. John chapter 18, I want you to see something really significant. John 18, where we just read in verse, we, we just read verse 33. I'm sorry, we read verse uh, 36, but I want you to look at verse 33 to see how this conversation started. Then Pilate, now remember, for those of you that you're, you're, I might be moving too fast for you, we are now at the, we began at the beginning of Jesus' life, we now conclude at the end of Jesus' life, minutes before his crucifixion. Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou what? The king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Then Jesus says that passage about my kingdom is not of this world. So in verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, or for this purpose, this is why I was born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate says unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find no, in him no fault at all, but you have a custom that I should release unto you one at Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? And they cry, No, give us Barabbas, the criminal. Give us Barabbas, the robber. And we fast forward in chapter 19. To verse number 14. And it was the preparation. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be in verse number 14. Yeah, the, the, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good at 14. You're right. It was the preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. 
And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests to the Jews of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Interesting, Jesus never even said that. He, ne he never even said it. But he was. He didn't have to say it. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And there Jesus hung on the cross with a crown of thorns, with the inscription on the placard on the cross in three languages, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But the people said, we have no king but Caesar. And there Jesus dies. Why, why is unbelief in Jesus such an offense for every person that has ever asked the question, how could, what, why is the punishment for sin hell? I would answer with the question, how can you look at the king of creation bleeding on the cross? Bleeding on the cross. With the placard above, king of the Jews. As the God of creation dies on our behalf. And look at the bleeding savior and say, I don't need that king. I've got a good life. I've got money. I have no king but Caesar. That is the ultimate offense of unbelief. And any person who rejects Jesus Christ turns their back on the king, the true king. And Christians, for those of us who have received Christ as our savior, could I challenge us? Every time we revert back into materialism or excessive politicization or selfishness, we essentially look at the cross and say, we have no king but Caesar. That's why he came in the manger. That's why he was born in insignificance. That's why he gave his life to be a ransom for our sins. And so I just would love for you and I today to finish. As we come to prayer to end the service, we just say, my king. We have no king but Jesus. We have no king but Jesus. And so I would ask you this morning, if your allegiance is questionable, let's just put it that way. If you came in here with a questionable allegiance, would you surrender that to King Jesus this morning? But the ultimate question, 
Have you ever surrendered your life, your soul, to King Jesus? Have you been saved? Have you received his forgiveness of sins? He died on the cross for our sins. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have said, Jesus, I am not my own king. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. Please save me. If that's never happened in your life, that's why Jesus died. And he invites you to receive him today. So if you would all just bow your heads and close your eyes with me right now. Just have this still moment in the service. Heads bowed and eyes closed and prayerful spirit. If you're here or you're watching the message today. And you've never made Jesus your king. You've never personally received him as your savior. Just different ways of saying you've never been saved. You've never been saved. You can do that right now. Just pray out, pray to him. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's, it's, it's not a religious action. It's just the belief of your heart, the confession of your mouth. Would you say this to God? If you're ready to be saved, would you say this to God? Say, pray something like this. Say, dear God, dear God, I know that I am a sinner. I am lost. I deserve hell and judgment. But I believe, Jesus, that you died for me. And I believe that you rose again. Please save me. I trust you as my Savior and my King. Please save me. If you'll do that right now, if you'll pray something like that from a sincere heart, the Bible says that you're saved. You become a child of God. You become a part of God's kingdom by believing in Jesus. Don't wait. If you have questions, let us know. You can just say, you can just let me know after the service. Say, hey, or you could fill out a connection card. And on our connection card, it says, I have questions. We'll privately contact you. If you're watching online, you can send a message saying, hey, I, I have some more questions about what it means to believe in Jesus. We'd love to help you settle that. So don't wait. Don't hesitate. Now, Christians who have believed in Christ, we gave the message, we gave the application at the end. You and I know these counterfeit kings in our life. Jesus is the only deserving king. So as we have our closing time of prayer right now, just spend a minute, minute or two in prayer, confess whatever, wherever your allegiance is torn, and just recommit your, your focus and your passion to Jesus, our worthy king different kind of king, our savior king. As the music softly plays, let's just have a closing time of prayer. Lord, we, we go from the manger to the cross this morning. We want to just contemplate on your crucifixion and that you were the king hanging there for us. I don't spend enough time thinking about your sacrifice. Lord, there's kings in all of our lives that try to rob you of your glory. Lord, each of us have different temptations and snares. And I pray for our church this morning. I pray for each, each, each believer here.
be fully committed to you, fully surrendered to you, Lord. Deal with each heart as only you can. We love you, we praise you, and we now, we now lift our voices in a song to give you, our King of Kings, the glory. Do your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. be our king. And we thank you that our loyalty is to him. We don't have to worry about what happens around us. We don't have to be tied to a political party or anything like that. But God, our loyalty is to Jesus and to you. God, I pray if someone in here doesn't know you as their savior, that today would be the day that they would understand their need and that they would put their faith in you. Bless us now as we go. Lord, I pray that we meditate on what we learn throughout the week. In Jesus' name. so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.